Well, good morning. Welcome to, uh, welcome to Mosaic. Uh, if you don't know, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're a visitor with us, uh, we're stoked that you're here. So we've been in this series called Perhaps, and last week uh, we were talking about risk and talking about the inevitability of risk when it comes to following Jesus. That oftentimes what seems to be the smart decision, the wise decision, uh, the decision that makes the most sense on paper is not always the faithful decision. Or that God inevitably, if you follow him long enough, if you surrender yourself fully enough, will lead us into circumstances and situations that absolutely terrify us. And he will call us to engage and to act anyway. Uh, for most of us, however, you know, when we look at those moments, sometimes that risk that we're going to take and need to take is really, really clear, and sometimes not so much. Uh, but for most of us, most days, most moments of our lives, our problem is not clarity, uh, it's courage. It's not that we have absolutely no idea what to do. I mean, we, we act like it is, right? We say things like, man, if I only knew what God wanted of my life, right? If I only knew what God's will was for my life. If I only knew what God wanted in this particular dilemma in my life, then I would obey. But for most of us, it's not that we don't know. It's that we don't lack the courage. We lack the courage to act on what we do know. Right? Because the truth is, is the, the longer that you follow Jesus, the more that you go down this journey, the clearer things will actually become for you in many, many ways. Right? The more that you will come to understand God and, and get in tune with Him and, and the way forward and what He desires for you becomes clearer and clearer, but the reality is that you can come to church for the rest of your life, and you can devote yourself to understanding the Bible more fully, and packing in theological knowledge, and growing in your understanding of who God says He is and what He's done, and still remain completely unchanged. There might be nothing more maddening than to get a glimpse of the person that you're meant to become, and to never become that person. Or to get a, to get, get a vision, a, a teaser of the dream that could become a reality through your life and to never actually see it happen because we lack the courage to pull the trigger and to move forward. For most of us, our problem is not clarity. It's courage. If you're just joining us, we are looking at a story in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We pick up our story there. If you're just joining us, Israel... At this time is at war with the Philistines and things are not looking good. They are completely outnumbered. The Israelite army that Saul had originally gathered was numbered as many as 300,000 men, but through a number of bad decisions, and just because of the person that Saul was, uh, that number was now down to just about 600. 600 warriors with Saul against 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and we're told Philistine soldiers as numerous as the sands of the sea. And then to make matters worse, when the Philistines came in and actually subjected Israel to their rule, they exported everyone who worked with iron and their machinery. And so they were out of weapons. They couldn't even sharpen their uh, farming equipment. And so we're told they're down to just two swords. One for Saul, because he's king, and one for Jonathan, his son. Saul was one of those guys that really struggled when it came to faith. Uh, he went through the motions and he did a number of things that spiritual people do, that God's people do. He, he prayed, he, he participated in some of the sacrifices and the traditions of the day. But when it came down to it, like Saul was just going to do what he wanted. He was going to do it on his timeline. He was going to do it in the way that, that served him best. And he would worship God and do what God desired as long as it... Hey, that was awesome. <laughs> is, is that Pac-Man? Mario. Mario. I knew it was a throwback to the NES. 
you're in good company. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> oh, Saul. Talk about Saul. That's right. Uh, that's awesome. So Saul, Saul was a religious guy. Um, he's somewhat of a spiritual guy, but he was not a surrendered guy. He would serve God as long as it served himself, as long as it was convenient, as long as he thought he meant he could get what he wanted. But the moment that God asked something of him that made him uncomfortable, that demanded his complete allegiance, he was out. And so Jonathan, or Saul suffers and struggles through most of his life. We find it here in this moment and moving forward. And if we were to dig into the chapters to come and the rest of Saul's story, we'd find that he just spirals quickly uh, because of the man that he is, because God does not have access to his life. And, and it reaches its worst when he, he visits a witch um, to spiritually intercede for him, and then he very shortly after commits suicide on the battlefield. So Saul struggles, and he's struggling here. And what we find in this particular moment is that they're at war, there's an oppressive enemy, crisis, they're in a moment of crisis, but Saul will not engage. He doesn't want to fight, he's not going to have no part of this battle, but not Jonathan. So beginning in verse 1, it says this, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor, young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One cliff stood toward the north, the other to the south. And Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So armor bearer replied, Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on, we will cross over to them and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are, we won't go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So the both of them showed themselves at the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And I would love to, to know what Jonathan is thinking in this moment, what he's feeling, what's coursing through his veins and his heart. Right, was it just adrenaline? Right, or, or is Jonathan perhaps meditating on some of the promises that God had given to him in the covenant? So, for example, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8. Perhaps he was meditating on this. Maybe this was at the forefront of his mind. God's promise. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Perhaps that's what Jonathan was thinking about in the moment. Perhaps he was thinking of Gideon, who had come before him. And fought also against overwhelming odds. Uh, we don't really know. But whatever the case, what we do know is that Jonathan was convinced that he and God were a majority. Or that God, if God chose to act, that God was going to do something extraordinary in response to his faith, in response to his courage. And so he moved. And it tells us, continuing, that when they reached the top, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in, the, in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. In the chaos, the Philistines turned on one another and began killing each other. 
Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. For 15 miles, they pursued and cut down the Philistines. Not only was Israel's army victorious in this day, in this particular battle, but everything changed. One man's courage sparked this army engaging in battle. All these men who had fled in fear joined. The army was rebuilt. Numbers were back up. All because of one man's courage. One man's courage and God's response to that courage. I, uh, I love stories like this. I love stories that speak to men and women who had to act in courage against overwhelming odds. I love it. And so like all of my favorite movies, almost all of them are around this same theme. I was thinking about that this week. So I mean classics like Braveheart, you know, and Gladiator, and uh, the Lord of the Rings films, Hala, you know, Cinderella Man. You see Cinderella Man with Russell Crowe? So good, fighting for his family, right, defending uh, his loved ones. Like, I, I even like, confession, I even like uh, The Last Samurai, Tom Cruise, which, if you think about it, is ridiculous because The Last Samurai Warrior ends up being a white guy from the United States. You know, only in America can we get away with that and make money. Like, a movie like that makes money, you know. But I, I'm a sucker for it because it's just like the same story that draws me in every single time are, are men and women of courage that have to fight for the ones they, they love, you know, against overwhelming odds. And so even The Last Samurai, <laughs> I love it. And maybe, maybe part of the reason that I, I love stories around courage is, is for me, courage doesn't come naturally. Like I, I'm not one of those natural-born heroes. You know, those guys that have ice in their veins, it seems that they always make the hard decision, the courageous decision, despite odds, despite the cost of their own life. Like I, I'm, I'm not that guy. You know, far from it. I grew up in a small town in Worthington, uh, called Worthington, Minnesota. It's like a small rural uh, farming community in southern Minnesota. And, uh, and I loved growing up in a small town because in a small town, everybody knows everybody. And so once you kind of establish who you are, uh, there's, it's just kind of smooth sailing, you know. Because um, everybody knows everybody. And so it's, it's kind of this cool, connected thing. And so my elementary school experience was awesome, like pretty free from conflict. Everything was great until the day Jose moved to town. Jose was this bully in every respect of the word. I mean, he, he moved in and immediately was like, you know, just the, the cock of the walk. You know, he was, he, his family was, was tough. He was the youngest of like six brothers. And uh, they were always fighting. So he was tough. I mean, he knew how to defend himself. Uh, but he wasn't just on the defensive. He was always on the offensive and just pushing kids around and doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And make matters worse, he's bigger than all of us and older than all of us. Like, I don't know how old he was, but in, he had a mustache. He's in the second grade. You know? <laughs> I think he's at least 16. You know? But he was bigger, and he used it all the time to take advantage of other people. And so for months, I mean, this is driving me nuts, right? And people are talking around the schoolyard. Um, Jose needs to be stopped. Jose needs to be stopped. This can't go on any longer. He doesn't even belong here. right? He's not from Worthington. He needs to go back to whatever town he moved here from. Uh, but nobody would stand up to him. And I certainly didn't plan on standing up to him. 
Uh, but one day, so we're in the library, right? And we're all like in line checking out books. And uh, I had just had enough. And, and he pulled a classic Jose move. And he went and he cut to the very front of the line in front of the smallest little kid. And he looks at me and he's like, what are you going to do about it? You know? And I, I didn't plan, I didn't catch myself, but immediately I was like, Jose, knock it off. And immediately I regretted those words. But I had already said them, so I couldn't take them back. So I said, knock it off. You need to go to the back of the line. You know, he's like, what did he say? And a uh, teacher steps in and says, is there a problem here, boys? He's like, no, no problem. You know, went to the back of the line, came, gave me the look. And uh, I knew it wasn't going to be good. And he, before he, he turned around and walked away, he said, I'll see you at recess. That was the longest school day that I can ever remember. You know, like, I was just trying to suck the life out of every moment, right, and enjoy the little life that I had left. And so recess came, and I tried to avoid him at all costs. Like, at first I was kind of hanging around the the gym teacher, you know, and then I was over kind of behind the tetherball area, because I knew Jose didn't usually go over there. But he found me. He tracked me down. And apparently he had told everybody that he was going to beat me up, because everybody came with him to see just how bad this was going to be. So everybody circles around us, and, and he says, let's go. And he pushed me. I said, Jose, I'm not going to fight you, man. I don't want to fight. And he said, well, you don't have a choice. Come on. And he shoved me again. And I said, Jose, I'm not going to fight you. And so I turned to walk away, and he jumped on my back. And so everybody starts chanting, fight, fight, fight. And I, I'd never been in this situation before. I'd never been in a fight before. I didn't know how to handle myself. I got this guy like, on my back. You know, I, like, I can't even punch him if I wanted to. And, and you know, the teachers are descending on us quickly. And as they're descending on us, Jose's grip slips. And he just goes right over my shoulders. And it looks like I just body slammed him on the ground. <laughs> it looked like it. And, you know, I was like the hero. The teachers would, like pull him off. And he's coming after me. And... I'm pretending like they need to hold me back. And, and he looked at me and he said, you're dead. And I believed him. And every, to all the kids in the school, I was the hero. You know, but I knew better. I didn't body slam him. He just lost his grip, but I wasn't telling anybody. Because I liked it. But he said, you're dead. So I went down to the principal's office and, you know, explained what had happened. And, and the principal decided to pardon me. The teachers pardoned me, but Jose did not. And so Jose had to look out for me, and, and I, for the next two, three days, I just, I just hid as much as I could. I stayed close to every teacher that I could, you know, not making it obvious, but just kind of hanging close enough, you know, as I could. I did not go to the bathroom unless my friends went to the bathroom. And at recess, I faked sick for three days to take refuge in the nurse's office so Jose wouldn't find me again. But I had a problem, because at the end of the day, like, I didn't get picked up by a bus. My parents didn't pick me up. Uh, I had to walk home. And so I knew eventually uh, he was going to find me. He told me he was going to kill me. And, uh, and so the first couple of days I avoided him. I was okay. I mean, I would make my way out of school very quietly, very slowly, sneak around, and I was fine. But on day three, Jose was waiting for me. And uh, I didn't see him at first. He was around a corner, but my sister Rachel saw him. And, and he came up behind me, and she said, Aaron, look out! And I turned just in time to see his fist punch me in the nose. And so I, I, I'm there, and I start bloody nose, you know, my eyes are watering. I'm not crying. I think there's allergies or something. <laughs> and, and my dad had given me permission to, to engage and to, to protect myself. And he said something I think every father should tell his son. Because I, I told him what happened, and he said, Aaron, you never start a fight, but you always finish it. 
If somebody punches you first, you make sure you punch them last. And you never walk away. And so for me, this was a great thing. But in this moment, so I've got permission. So I did what any respectable young man would do. I told on him and he got suspended. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually, I enlisted in karate lessons like the very next week. No joke. You know, but I wish I could say that as I got older, like the cowardice thing went away. And that the fear went away. And that acting in courage got easier. Uh, but it never did. Like, I never, I never grew up out of that. I, I find myself having to wrestle with fear continually uh, in my life. Right? Fear of rejection, fear of intimacy, if I'm really honest, fear of failure. Right? When it comes to fear, I'm an equal opportunity employer. You know? I, I am afraid a lot. Right? I, I will be in a conversation, hanging out at a bar or with friends on the back deck, guys that don't connect so much spiritually, at least not yet. They're kind of journeying, seeking, asking questions. And I'll get that nudge, you know, that kind of internal nudge where I, just, I know that I'm supposed to share with them. I'm supposed to share with them about Jesus, regardless of what they might think of me. But if I'm really honest, more often than not, I, like I balk. And I, I walk away. Because I think more often than not, I'm worried about what other people think of me than what God would desire of me. I have things that go right, and God gives me things. And rather than being thankful and enjoying them, I find myself immediately afraid that I'm going to lose them. You know, or I perform really well, as well as I'm going to perform in an arena of my life, like on a Sunday morning. And uh, rather than being thankful and feeling really good about it, I find myself oftentimes immediately afraid that I can't repeat the performance. I'm not a natural-born hero. I, I struggle with fear a lot. You ever been there? I mean, maybe for you it is fear of failure or rejection, or maybe it's fear of risking yourself, trusting yourself to other people, worrying that they're not going to be trustworthy with your heart and your soul. And so you don't risk yourself to others. Maybe it's financially, and you worry about being able to make ends meet or providing for your family. Maybe it's protecting your kids and being afraid because you can't always be there for them and protect them. I think fear comes in many ways, shapes, or forms. And I think if we were really honest and having a cup of coffee, we probably would both have to agree that in some way, shape, or form, we all struggle with fear, don't we? Have those moments where we are very much afraid. And I want to start there because when we read stories like Jonathan's, I think the tendency is to put him and people like him in this elitist category, this hero status. Right? When we read the story about Jonathan and we think, you know what, of course God would use him. Of course. Look at how courageous he is. Look how fearless he is. Right? And we think... It's always the other person that's the hero. They're heroic. They're brave. They're the one without fear, but not me, because I know myself. Right? It's, it's the paramedics. It's the firefighters who run into burning buildings without any regard for their own safety to save as many lives as they can. People who seem to experience not fear, but courage, moment by moment, day by day. That's them. Right? But it's not me. And we find ourselves in situations where we are afraid, and I think the tendency is maybe to immediately conclude that I'm not like that. Of course, I would choose the way of the coward. But the hard part about, about courage and making the courageous decision is that the fear never really goes away. It's not really fair. Right? So when you find yourself in this situation where you have to choose and you have a hard choice to make and you know what you should do, and you, but you don't want to do it because you're afraid, and you choose the coward's way, like the overwhelming emotional feeling in that moment is fear. 
Right? But the ripoff is that when you make the right decision and you choose the courageous decision, the overwhelming emotion in that moment is fear. Right? It's a ripoff. It's, the feeling is exactly the same. Right? It's just, it's not the absence of fear, it's choosing to act in spite of fear. Right? It can be tempting to read stories like Jonathan's and, and many of the heroes of the faith, and we open up the Bible, right? and we conclude that you know, God chose him because of his lack of fear, but it wasn't his gifting. It wasn't his innate ability. It wasn't the fact that he didn't have any fear whatsoever. It was his willingness, and that's it. It was his willingness to be used by God. Nothing in Jonathan's life was off limits to God. Even his very life itself was God's. He was just willing to act in spite of any fear that he might have. And what I find encouraging is that the story of the Bible is filled with stories like these. Men and women who God used in extraordinary ways to do extraordinary things were oftentimes the exact same people who at times experienced the most fear. And God chose them anyway. And God used them anyway. It's one of the reasons I love the story of Joshua. Chapter 1, the book of Joshua. Joshua, you know, had to take over from Moses when he was done. We all know Moses. Even if this is your first day in church ever, you've heard of Moses. Famous guy, extraordinary leader, did a lot of cool stuff. And Joshua has to fill those shoes. He had just been Moses' aide. And I love this. In chapter 1, we get to hear God's conversation as Joshua steps into this moment. And God says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Which is something that Jesus said and promised to us. I will never leave you, never forsake you. Which I think is both a promise and a warning. Right? It's a promise that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But it's a warning because we need to know that. Right? Because there's going to be moments when we're going to feel like he's gone. Moments when we are very, very afraid. And so he's assuring Joshua, it's not going to be easy, but I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So, verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may successful wherever you go. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And the last verse in the chapter, only be strong and courageous. Right? And I absolutely love this. Why did God have to say this? Right? Is God schizophrenic? Does he have short-term memory loss? No, it's because Joshua is afraid. He is so afraid. So God has to keep saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Find this throughout the scriptures. Guys like Timothy. Right? Timothy, who was called and sent out by, called by God and sent out by Paul, struggled with fear. He was timid. And so Paul always had to keep telling him, dude, don't be afraid. Don't be timid. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Choose to act anyway. Right? Guys like Thomas, who was afraid, who doubted. Guys like Peter who's afraid and deserted and denied. Do you remember, I love this, do you remember how the disciples reacted when Jesus was arrested? All of them, they ran away. Every single one of them ran away. And these are the people that Jesus personally chose. And in that moment, though they were afraid, these were the same people that God would use to turn the world upside down. I find that very encouraging. So, that being said, what is it about fear that paralyzes some and propels others? Or what is the difference between those who, the man or the woman who, who finds the courage to act continually despite their fear and those who end up finding their lives to be dominated by fear? 
I would submit to you that the answer is very, very simple, but very difficult to live out. I would say, I would submit to you that the, the answer is, is who you worship. Who or what you worship is ultimately what makes the difference between being a person who is ruled by fear and being a person who is able to continually act in spite of fear. Right, not what you say you worship. That's not what I'm talking about. Right, not the religion that you associate yourself with. Right, not the God that you sing a few songs to on Sunday morning, as great as that might be. But I'm talking the God that you actually worship with your life, moment by moment, choice by choice. Right, is, that, is, that, is that God for you? Really? Or is it something else? Is, is God the grid through which you make your decisions? God, what do you want? Not what do I want, what would I prefer, but God, what do you want? Is he the sole driving force behind where you're going, yes, you mess up, yes, you make mistakes, yes, you're a failure, I know that, we all are. You know, welcome to the club. But despite that, when you pick yourself up off the ground and God is there to embrace you again, is God the compass that moves you forward or is it something else? Or like Saul is religion just one of those things you just kind of go through the motions with? Do the bare minimum to make yourself feel a little better, but in the end, ultimately, it's more about what you want. And the moment that gets hard, and God calls us to sacrifice something that we really don't want to give up, that we really like, that we really want to control, right? we balk and walk away. Right? Which one is it? Because that will ultimately make the difference. Right? So here's a, good, here's a good litmus test. Here's a litmus test that I would suggest from who or what you're worshiping, whether that's God or whether that's someone else or something else, is in your life, are you moving towards selflessness? Increasingly so. Is God moving you towards selflessness or are you still stuck in selfishness? Because the thing about fear is that fear, ultimately fear is rooted in self-preservation, isn't it? When we find ourselves absolutely paralyzed by fear and overwhelmed by fear, isn't that just because we find ourselves in a moment that is beyond our control and we don't like it? And emotionally, we don't know how to deal with it. And so we find ourselves absolutely afraid because we feel the need to control, to protect ourselves, right, to save our own neck, and all of a sudden we realize, uh-oh, I can't. Right, which is why the, the longer that your primary concern is for yourself, the more ruled by fear your life will always be. Because sooner or later, you and I are going to have to face the music. Sometimes it comes kind of hard that we're really not in control of much of anything, although we won't like to think that we are. Right, you can be the best at your workplace. You can be a great employee, give your very best, and have a promising future, and then all of a sudden somebody comes along who's younger than you, more talented than you, will work for less money than you. Or you can pour your heart and soul into what looks like a very smart business, and everything looks great, and then all of a sudden the market changes. Right, Kodak is a great example of this. Like, how many of us have used Kodak products somewhere along the way? Probably most, if not all of us. All of a sudden, market changes, and what looked like a sure thing, all of a sudden turns upside down and goes bankrupt. Right, you can you can invest your money in the smartest of ways with all the right information and listen to everything Warren Buffett says, and then the economy tanks. You don't have any control over that. Or you can give your heart and your soul away and love your spouse or future spouse in all the right ways selflessly and still hear the words, I'm sorry, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. You can't control that. Or you can eat healthy and work out 
right, and live a very healthy lifestyle and still get the call from the doctor, I'm sorry, but it's cancer. But there are very few things in this life that are under our control. In the summer of 2002, I was uh, living down in the Dominican Republic and doing some work with uh, Youth for Christ, actually. And uh, it was, uh, we were basically working with teams, short-term teams that would come in, high school kids, and uh, help them get around the island and uh, lead their teams, uh, worship, teaching, and, and just kind of help lead their trip. And uh, towards the end of the summer, um, a team came in, and they had scheduled something without us um, and invited us to come along because uh, they had done it before. And we got on a bus and drove through the slums uh, outside of Santo Domingo and outside uh, the city walls and outside uh, the city area and came to this encampment. And it was a leper colony. And in most nations, leprosy is not an issue. It doesn't really exist. Um, but in the Dominican Republic, at least 10 years ago, it very much existed. And it was crazy because it was, it was very much like biblical leprosy in the sense that it was completely removed from everybody. Uh, they had like 20, 30-foot walls circling this place. I mean, it was almost like a death camp. And if you don't know anything about leprosy, it's, it's, a, it's a devastating disease. And, and you start to lose feeling in kind of your extremities, your fingers, your toes, and they actually die, and you begin to lose them. First your fingers and your toes. Uh, Oftentimes, then you'll lose your nose and your ears. Um, If it's really bad, you'll start losing limbs as well. And so it's just like, I mean, physically, visibly, just total devastation. And so we took these kids, and we went through this. We went through this camp, and um, we had came to find out as we visited with these, these people that their family don't visit them. Almost none of them had seen family for as long as that they could remember because it's still this fear that it's a communicable disease and you might catch it. So these people are completely alone. So we went just to love them, to hug them, right, to play music for them. And so I brought my guitar and I was uh, playing and, and singing and um, went into this one room. And I'll never forget it. Uh, I walked in and I was singing to one gal and I completely didn't see that there was another gal behind me because she was so... She had so withered away. She was so tiny and small that you could barely see her underneath the covers of this blanket. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget, you know, she spoke Spanish, I spoke English, uh, but I was singing songs, and I just remember the three words that she kept singing over and over and over and repeating were, were Gloria, Jesus, and Hallelujah. And it was like the only time that the pain seemed to go away, you know, and it was just this, I'll never forget it, just branded into my mind. And so we got the kids at the end of this day, and we put them on this bus, and we're driving away, and, like, there's just no words. You know, like, how do you make sense of that? Like, suffering like that never makes sense. And so these kids, there's no words. It's just silence. It's lots of tears. And, and after we had, that night, after we had debriefed with the kids, I went off. And I was, I was almost angry. You know, angry I got that that even existed. And uh, trying to reconcile what I had just experienced. And I'm sitting up on this hill, and I'm overlooking all these tiny lights of the slums on this valley and the shadow of these mountains. And, and it's like in that moment, God said, Aaron, what you just saw today was you as you really are. What you saw today is how you are before me. Every day, every moment, you're it's one step closer to death. And you might die 60 years from now. You might die tomorrow. Or you can't control much of anything in your life. You can't control... Your health, you can't control your career, you can't control your family, you can't control when or how you die. The only thing that you can choose is how you will live. 
So what is it going to be? Are you going to choose to serve me with everything and give me, God, control over your entire life or not? You know, when uh, the word courage was incorporated into the English language, it came from Latin. It came from the core word uh, cur, uh, which means heart. And the original definition meant to tell and to own the full story of who you are. To tell and own the full story about who you are. You and I cannot be men and women of courage if we don't get honest about who we are before God. Who we really are. What we can actually control. And to relinquish that control so God can finally have the keys and the steering wheel. Now, I think the best definition I've ever heard of courage came from uh, Erwin McManus. And um, I love the way they put it. He said, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the absence of self. Right? It's that moment when you find yourself absolutely engulfed in how great God is and how tiny you are and the life that he calls you to, that fear is no longer a problem because you don't have to play God anymore. And I'll tell you, when we play God, we fail every single time, but God's pretty good at it if you let him. And so we are called to this total surrender. And, and it's, I, like, I would love to see what it looks like to God when we try to like white-knuckle and hold on to the things in this life that we have no control over. I, I have to imagine it's kind of like trying to grip sand. Right? And it just inevitably slips through your hands and your fingers. And the harder you clench, the more you lose it. Because none of it is ours. It is all outside of our control. But when we relinquish control and give God everything, and we don't have to do this anymore. But we can live like this. I can tell you, when you live like this, there's not fear there. Not that fear that lasts. Like This is where the courage is. And part of following Jesus is this total surrender. I mean, let's get honest. Let's strip this of spiritual language just for a moment. Right? We need to let God help us get over ourselves. Because the more that we white-knuckle this life and try to control, the more out of control our life will become. Right? You try to hold on to your money, for example. You apply this to any area of your life. But let's just use money as an example. You try to control your money. Disregard anything that God might say about how he might want you uh, to spend that money, invest that money, give that money away. Just disregard all that. You try to cut God out of that area of your life, maybe you should be afraid. Because you're on your own. Right? Same is true in relationships. If we're going to disregard what God would have us do, and we know that there's parts of this relationship that does not honor God, but I'm taking what I'm wanting, I'm trying to control what I can, maybe we should be afraid. Maybe we should be nervous. Because God can't work in that. Not until we let go. And relinquish control. Right? If you find yourself in a place in your life where you don't really like where you're at, you don't like who you are, you're miserable, you're struggling, but you refuse to submit yourself to God, to relinquish control of your life, then you might want to get used to where you're at because it might not get any better. Right? But God invites us to more. And I love this. This is what Jesus says. This is our posture. This is what we're called to. All right? Throughout religion... Throughout what you've seen role model for you, throughout the two hours on Sunday morning and the peppered prayer throughout the week, this is the posture that we are called to as followers of Jesus. Take it or leave it, but this is what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 24, verses 24 and 25. And I'll end with this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it.
So I'm going to end with this question. This is what I want to leave you with. And I hope you'll ask it of yourself. Like, what are you worshiping, really? I mean, if you want to know, just look at whatever area of your life you find yourself most afraid. Wherever you struggle with fear the most, it's probably the area you need to look at. Does God have any reign in that area of your life? Or has that been off limits up until now? Or what are, you, what are you worshiping, really? What area of your life do you need to allow God to do a little excavating? You need to give God control. Give it back. It's not yours. Right, what area of your life is that? You'll struggle with courage, and you'll struggle with fear as long as you hold on to it. All right, let's pray. Father God, ah, oh, this one hits home. This one hits home for me, God, because I know how afraid I find myself at times. Because if I'm really honest, there are moments when I'm more concerned about how I am perceived, more afraid of failure, and care more about being successful than I do about what you want. God, I'd venture to guess that there's a number of people in this room who find themselves experiencing something very, very similar in different areas of their life. And Lord God, I ask that in this moment you would give them absolute clarity and conviction into what that is. And that God, you would give us the courage to relinquish control of those areas, to invite you into those places in our lives where we have been most afraid to give up so that you can take it and control it so we can stop pretending that we're in control and trying to play God and let you be the God over our lives. Lord God, I pray for those in this room who have never trusted their lives to you, those who are spiritually seeking, searching, asking questions, not sure where they land. Lord God, I thank you for bringing them to a point where they can walk into a church and ask those questions. And Lord God, I ask that you would speak into their heart and soul about yourself, that you would reveal yourself to them in a way that is absolutely undeniable, that you would reveal to them how much you love them, that you're far less concerned with where they've come from and what they've done in the past and far more concerned with where they're going, and that you want to take them to a place they have never been before. Lord God, as we as a community surrender ourselves into your hands, Lord God, I ask that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, in our souls, in and through our lives. That this would be a place where your people can get honest and stop pretending, where the fig leaves can finally come off, and we can just be real as we seek to journey with you and give up all of ourselves, taking up our cross in order to follow you, losing all of ourselves in the great God that you are and the great life that you call us to. Lord God, as a community, we pray all these things in your name as we come to worship together. Amen.